ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. Talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. I had the time to speak to Native, Maori, Indigenous, Sami journalists from around the world. It was spooky because I felt like we were living these parallel lives in newsrooms around the world. And it gave me the chance to actually quantify it and write about it and actually give it a name rather than just have it be a feeling in newsrooms that I had lived in and worked in. The Challenges of First Nations Journalism in Conversation with Bridget Brennan. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Bridget Brennan joined the ABC as a cadet in 2010, and she's had a stellar career since. Recently, she joined News Breakfast as newsreader and also co-hosts the TV show One or Two Days a Week. Her previous role was Indigenous Affairs Editor for ABC News, but Bridget continues to do reporting and analysis on Indigenous Affairs, as well as mentoring the ABC's new generation of First Nations journalists. Bridget is a Jar Jar Waring and Yorta Yorta woman from Victoria, and was previously the ABC's Europe correspondent and the ABC's first Indigenous Affairs correspondent. Bridget was part of a team of ABC journalists that won the Melbourne Press Club Gold Quill for their Four Corners report, How Many More?, which was also nominated for a Logie and was a finalist in the 2023 Walkley Awards. But Bridget's become concerned about how common it is for First Nations journalists to get burned out and disillusioned. So she's used her recent fellowship at the Reuters Institute at Oxford University to find out why. Bridget highlights in her research how Indigenous journalists are exposing multiple human rights abuses in settler colonial countries, but she points to unseen pressures that must be dealt with to avoid losing this cohort of First Nations journalists. Such important work. Bridget Brennan, welcome back to Speaking Out. Thanks, Larissa. It's lovely to be here. I'm a long-time listener, so it's great to join you. Well, I am a long-time fan. It's been wonderful to watch your journey as a journalist. It's been really inspiring. So I'm sure I'm not the only one who's followed this trajectory and, and been really excited to see you go into places where we haven't seen journalism from our mob before, particularly with that international affairs portfolio mm. that you were so great at doing and brought a really fresh perspective to. But before we get into all of that, um, we always like here at Speaking Out to kind of give a bit of a context to where it all began. So mm. I wondered if you could tell us a bit about where you're from and who were your greatest influences growing up? Where did your love of storytelling and I think social justice come from? Well, I'm from Victoria, um, from a great line of Aboriginal uh, leaders, writers, thinkers, activists. Um, you know, my great, great uncle is William Cooper. So I come from a really strong Aboriginal family. And of course, everyone knows, you know, Victorian mob are so staunch and we do definitely, I think, lead the way um, in, in a lot of areas. So I'm really proud to be a Yorta Yorta Jaja Rung woman. So two distinct mobs um, with a lot of crossover and come from amazing people and, and especially Yorta Yorta people when, wherever I go, you know, you always meet Yorta Yorta mob, whether you're overseas, you know, <laughs> in any state, we're everywhere, you know, we're pretty prolific. So um, yeah, I've got that really proud history. When it comes to who I was influenced by, um, 
You know, I remember as a child reading Bobby Sykes's three-part memoir and that being really, really important to me in in that history and the, the way that she she wrote about that history in the 60s, 70s and 80s and, and that really sparking a lot in me. And I was also really interested in history and my mum really sparked a lot of interest in understanding what was going on, not just in Australia, but in the world. And so we were big news watchers in our house and and mum would often take us to marches and protests. I mean, in 2000, we didn't do the bridge walk, but we did the Melbourne equivalent, um, the March for Reconciliation. And she was really, really strong about getting all of my brothers and sisters and I to understand that you have to have a lens outside of your immediate family and outside of your world to look at what was going on in Australia in politics and elsewhere overseas. So I think that was, you know, she's probably my real inspiration, my mum. She's an incredible woman. And I think I really tell young people that you have to watch the news and it doesn't mean you need to sit down to seven o'clock news every night because we know a lot of young people aren't doing that. But you have to be interested in worlds outside of your own because it just gives you uh, such an insight into what others are going through. And it really helps build up your knowledge and your empathy. Also, my grandma used to say, knowledge is power. You know, read, read, read. Knowledge is power. You need that power in your life to be interested in in things that are outside of your sphere. So yeah, I was, I was raised by a lot of strong women. And I think they, they were really my influence. And descended from William Cooper. What a yeah. wonderful, what a wonderful yeah. legacy to have know, in your family. Yeah, and he was. I mean, I he. If you go back and read his writing, I don't know that he would have called himself a journalist or a reporter, but that's what he was, right? And he was he was documenting what was happening to his people, but he was documenting a time. And we're so lucky to have those writings and to have all of those letters that he wrote because there was this, uh, all of those people that were involved in the Aborigines Advancement League of the time, they kind of were journalists. They were speaking about the issues that certainly wouldn't have been covered in the 1920s and 30s and beyond by the mainstream press. So, I really think of them as our first, some of our first journalists. Of course, our history of, of storytelling goes back 65,000 plus years, right? But also people like Pearl Gibbs. I mean, I'm so inspired by Pearl Gibbs and what she did for Aboriginal women. She was a reporter. Um, I think we don't recognise her work enough, but it's just so important to be always looking back at what those black journalists of the time did and how they paved the way for us now. Because the other thing about William Cooper that Um, I think resonates with some of the things you've just said is he was also somebody that looked outside of Australia. Mm. He was very, very aware of what was happening worldwide. That that, um, advice you had and that worldview you have of always looking beyond your own backyard and making sure you know what's going on, read the news, et cetera, know what's going on in the world. Mm. Um, He was very much like that too. So that's another great tradition in your family. Yeah, he was, wasn't he? I mean, especially during World War II, he was looking at what was happening to the persecution of of the Jews in in Europe. And I I actually think a lot of blackfellas are really interested in, in what's happening in different nations, especially where there's a history of colonial violence or settler colonialism. We're really, really interested in in the parallels and the experience of others because there are so many common threads uh, that uh, that we can find with each other. And that's why when I did this project, gosh, it was just such a um, it gave me so much strength, weirdly, hearing that other people were going through the challenges that we are. I don't know why. I think there's just solidarity in recognising that there's someone else overseas who's going through something similar to you. 
In hearing your family story and the wonderful personalities that are in your family tree, um, it's probably not surprising that you became a journalist, but tell us about that story because it wasn't a natural pathway for First Nations people. You know, there are obviously more and more of us coming in to mm. the media, but I think still at the time you, you have been a trailblazer in that area. What was it that drew you into journalism as a career? Mm. Yeah, well, I was thinking the other day how many people, were, how many Aboriginal people was I watching on telly when I was growing up and it was it was Dan Grant and who's a wonderful mentor, relative and friend of mine. Um, and it was Carla Grant, of course, as well. So those were the two that really stood out of my, in my mind as an Aboriginal kid in the 90s. That was it, you know. Um, and what Stan went on to do in his reporting overseas was so, so inspirational. I know to a lot of Aboriginal journalists now, but that's not many people to turn on the TV as a young kid in the 90s and see. And I talk about this with Aboriginal people all the time. We didn't, you, it's just that classic thing of you can't be what you can't see. Um, and so I was really lucky that I got, I got a degree at RMIT and I went and worked a little bit um, in Sydney in, in magazines and I wasn't paid very much, but I really enjoyed that work because it was where I started writing a lot. And then I was thinking, gosh, I watch a lot of ABC. <laughs> I'm really interested in ABC. <laughs> Why don't I try? Like it's such a pie in the sky, but I should try for a cadetship. So I did go for a cadetship and I remember, um, I still remember that interview in best being so, so scared. And, you know, it's funny. I mean, all the managers I've had have been so, so brilliant, but I'm coming up to 15 years next year at ABC and I've had one, one Aboriginal manager in that time. So that's not many. So I remember sitting down at that table and it was seven people on the panel. And I think it was six men who were white and one woman. And so, yeah, you know, things are changing in newsrooms, but that was the kind of world that I went into um, as a young cadet. That was the world in the media landscape. Mm. What were the, can you remember what the issues were on the national agenda at the time? What were some of the first stories you got to get your teeth into and what were sort of some of the big issues you were thinking about wanting to contribute to at the time? So some of the big issues was, of course, it was the Kevin Rudd years. Like, that's how old I am. <laughs> the Kevin Rudd years and the, and the Gillard years. And so as a cadet, you know... You're when making that... some people feel very young and others feel very old. <laughs> yeah, well, um, uh, it feels vintage to me because, you know, talking about Prime Minister Kevin Rudd feels like a long time ago. But uh, it was that post-apology time as well. Um, so that was really interesting and I did start doing some work on some stories about Aboriginal people being removed from their families and um, the amount of kids we've got in care. It's been a theme that I've covered, you know, throughout my career. But I remember like my hands shaking and going up to pitch a story about some families in Sydney who were doing some incredible things trying to recruit more Aboriginal foster carers. So those were hard stories to pitch, you know, and I, I think I also pitched a story and I, I did do a story about an increasing amount of Aboriginal people who were going into medicine, which is such a brilliant thing that we see now and, and that now those graduates are incredibly talented people in their fields. But, you know, hands kind of shaking, walking up, pleading, you know, I talk about this in my paper, pleading a bit of humanity to get editors to understand that these were really important stories. And typically where they were run is like the end of the bulletin. I mean, that was, if you were lucky enough to get an Aboriginal story into a show, 
you knew straight away that it wasn't a lead story, that it might be kind of after, you know, after all the other stories had been run, that you'd be back of the bulletin, you know, blacks up the back, yeah. <laughs> I used to say. Um, and that was something that I, you know, admittedly, I just thought was normal. I just thought, well, perhaps that's where those stories go, you know. And it did make me sad at the time, but I didn't really know as a young person without much power in a newsroom how to say, hey, I think that could be a lead story. There's so much in that that I think is really telling that, first of all, when we identify stories that we think are really important, if they're a strengths-based story, they're often not seen as news, the, mm. the stories of celebration, mm. when we sort of do things for ourselves or we're trying to solve our own problems. But then there's also the fact that we can be covering issues like uh, the issues of child removal or deaths in custody. And there's often a very personal aspect to them. They're things that have affected our own families or can be very close to the bone. And I know that you've spoken really insightfully about this, but I wonder what your reflections are on just that different positioning that you have as a First Nations woman journalist covering mm. these kind of stories, that personal toll. Yeah, huge personal toll, um, my beautiful friend and colleague Isabella Higgins talks about it because she's had a very similar career to me and we've covered Indigenous affairs together. Uh, and she speaks a lot about, you know, there's a lot of support if you go, for example, she she was in Ukraine. She was one of the first reporters on the ground when the, you know, full-scale invasion of Ukraine began. And she saw, obviously, saw a lot of trauma and uh, I think all reporters um, are exposed to trauma in, you know, perhaps it's an accident or it's road trauma or a horrific event happens to Australians and we're first on the scene and we don't often get very much time to think about what's this going to, what effect is this going to have and have on the crew who were there firsthand witnessing this or also our editors who view the vision often or exposure to people who've been through the worst of the worst. However, for our people, and Isabella puts this perfectly, so I hope she doesn't mind me stealing this. She says, you know, we're often watching our people die in slow motion. So we might be going to interview an elder who is, you know, in their 60s, for example, and a couple of years later we hear that that person's passed away and our people shouldn't be dying in their 60s. We know that. We know that it's a huge toll in our communities to see our uncles and aunties die um, so young. Or we might go to cover a story about stolen generations, for example, and many of us have that running right through our own families. So it touches you, it touches a nerve in you that's so, so deep and it's your story as well that you're telling. Um, and I think there's just this feeling of it just can feel so unfair what we're witnessing um, happen to our people. And, of course, we cover beautiful positive stories as well, but unfortunately there are just a, a lot of issues we have to solve in our communities and we have to be there as journalists to cover them. Um, you know, I've covered stories about children being removed from their families and, and then finding out, you know, that um, there was a really personal link to some of those stories. So, yeah, it just takes a really, really big toll on you and sometimes you don't realise straight away when the story's gone to air, but you might realise a couple of months or even years down the track how that's accumulated in you. And also the other thing is we have to go and argue for these stories, like I said, to 
earlier, we have to argue for those stories to be given more prominence. So there's this second fight that a lot of non-Indigenous journalists and editors, I don't think, fully understand how, how that tear strips off you. Yeah, I actually, in, in addition to that listening to you speak, I imagine there's another element to it that you carry as a kind of personal toll too, and that is the responsibility of the storytelling. If you get the story wrong or the story comes out harmfully, which mm-hmm. which reporting on Indigenous issues by non-Indigenous people has often done, mm-hmm. does damage to a family or a community, you have you don't get the luxury of, of going home and thinking, gee, I want to I would have done that better. You have oh. to face that community. And and I guess the other element that I'm thinking of in relation to some of these battles you must be having in a room, in a newsroom is that if if something does go wrong and it's not your fault, you are the person that other Aboriginal people are going to call and say, "Hey Bridget, what what's going on?" Like yeah. that there's that responsibility and I wonder if you have any reflections on that additional layer of what you're fighting for in the newsroom. Oh, 100%. And during my time at Oxford, I interviewed um, a wonderful native reporter, Graham Lee Brewer, uh, who works as as an investigative um, reporter. He's Cherokee, citizen of the Cherokee Nation. And he says, he explains it to non-native folks by saying, if you guys get it wrong, I'm the one that has to go calling in that community again. I'm the one that has to go and answer for that work. And I think every single Indigenous journalist knows many instances where perhaps our organisation or our industry as a whole has gotten things wrong and you just feel this burning shame and you feel so devastated and also your phone starts lighting up from people who are (laughs) letting you know that you've got it wrong even though, of course, you you already know. Um, so that, you know, that that's really... And look, I haven't always got it right either. Like, I'm not an expert on... I've learnt so much over sort of a decade, but there are stories I look back at and think, gee, I don't know that I did that... I would do that that way again, or I would even say yes to doing that story. Um, you know, sometimes there are times where an editor calls you and says, can you get on a plane and cover this now? And you don't have very much time to think about what's the, you know, the best practice way of doing this in a culturally safe way, particularly if it's a breaking news event. So even ourselves, I think we hold ourselves to a higher standard because our communities hold us to a higher standard and and as they should. I really admire the fact that with all of this rich experience, you took some time to study this, to take some time out to really try and dig deeply into our understanding of some of these dynamics. So can you tell us a little bit about your Reuters Fellowship and what motivated you to actually, you know, take that course of study and really delve into these issues? Well, I was really fortunate that ABC um, has a a, a place in the Reuters um, Fellowship Uh, at Oxford and the program's been running for decades, which is really incredible. And all sorts of journalists come from around the world to study things, to improve our newsrooms. And I'm super passionate, as you can probably hear, about newsrooms and about news. And I'm a bit of a nerd and I hadn't really taken the time out to go back and have time to think or breathe or study something, study the things that we talk about all the time. So I was so excited when I got the fellowship, although I just had my baby. So he came, you know, my kids came with me and my baby was four months old. So that was a bit tricky, but I was really wanted to look at what 
are the stresses impacting First Nations people? Because I sort of broadly knew in myself and talking to, you know, other Blackfellas at different organisations and also within ABC that we were all having a common experience. And I thought, I wonder if Indigenous people in other newsrooms around the world are also facing this. And I wonder if we could kind of write, even just, I mean, there's probably hundreds of them, but if I could choose five of them to, to really explore and write about to write for our non-Indigenous colleagues to really kind of perhaps just step into our shoes for a moment and think, huh, that must be a lot of added pressure on top of the job that you already do. So I had the time to speak to Native, Maori, Indigenous, Sami journalists from around the world and it was spooky because I felt like we were living these parallel lives in newsrooms around the world. And it gave me the chance to actually quantify it and write about it and actually give it a name rather than just have it be a feeling in newsrooms that I had lived in and worked in. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, ABC RN, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Coming up, we've got more from my conversation with journalist Bridget Brennan. She's been a mentor for a new generation of First Nations journalists here at the ABC. Right now, though, some new music from Dan Sultan.
That's Dan Sultan with St. Norsina, a song taken from his latest album. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Bridget Brennan has been a journalist at the ABC since she started as a cadet back in 2010. Since then, she's worked across Europe, Asia and America. She's also been Indigenous editor at ABC News, having been the department's first Indigenous affairs reporter just a few years earlier. More recently, Bridget took part in a fellowship at the Reuters Institute at Oxford University. She used the opportunity to explore the challenges facing First Nations journalists today. She describes many of these as being unseen or difficult to comprehend. In relation to the challenge around pitching stories, which you spoke of a little bit earlier, what were some of the things that came out of your research in relation to that? Oh, so much. Um, You know, this was the first thing that people spoke about even before anything else. It was just like, (laughs) just getting our bloody stories up, just, you know, just getting commissioned. Um, And the wonderful um, Indigenous investigative reporter, Connie Walker, who's Canadian um, and speaks about this. She says, you know, she remembers going to pitch a story and and being told like, oh, is this only a tiny section of people could possibly be interested in this? So that's something. And also Indigenous investigative reporters going to pitch incredible investigations, which were actually about community accountability, especially on reservations in the United States. Or, or, you know, tribal accountability stories about finances and that sort of thing and being told by editors like, uh, kind of like, oh, it's a bit awkward. It sounds a bit like complex. And do we really want to wade into that? You know, isn't that incredible that you would turn away an amazing story because it's just something that you don't really understand and it sounds like a bit like, oh, the natives are fighting. We, we won't kind of commission that story. So, yeah, I've had that throughout my career. Or Also being told, look, if we're going to commission this, like it's a really high bar. So you're going to have to meet this, this and this, and you're going to have to sort of frame it that way. And that was something that came up a lot, like that being really problematic. And I'm sure other Aboriginal people and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening to this will will sympathise in other industries, like kind of then having to go back and explain to an editor, well, actually, no, we can't do that because that doesn't meet our cultural obligations and that would be an unsafe way to tell the story or it would be actually kind of racist for us to do that. So... Yeah, things like that, just actually getting it off. You're kind of exhausted sometimes. I mean, things have completely changed um, in my organisation and um, I'm happy to say and I don't face that um, at all actually anymore, which is amazing. There's really wonderful um, openness now to telling our stories, but that was something that certainly drives people away from the industry. What were some of the other key areas that emerged from that research? What we spoke about earlier, just the toll and the trauma of telling stories for sure was really, really um, hard on people. I mean, I spoke to to folks in Canada who said 
covering the Pope's um, apology to survivors of residential schools was really personal and difficult for them. Sami journalists um, in Scandinavia talking about the impact of covering stories on climate change, which is affecting their cultural practice of reindeer herding, is so deeply personal to them and can leave them feeling completely deflated. Um, so that was something that, you know, they those stories really wear on your heart is what Duncan McHugh, um, who's a veteran Anishinaabe journalist from Canada, he, he speaks about it. It really wears on your soul. And sometimes, like I said, you, we go into communities and we don't do the best job. And that can really weigh on you for many years and decades afterwards. Um, the toll that we take on communities when we're going to talk about really personal things. I also spoke about racism that a lot of Indigenous journalists are facing. Of course, we've seen what happened to Stan, which was an absolute disgrace and a tragedy to lose um, his voice in the way that we did um, and the lack of support he felt he was given. Um, so that, but that's also really common. I mean, Maori journalists I was speaking to in New Zealand said they they started to think it was normal to open up their emails in the morning and trawl through racist emails they'd had from listeners or from, you know, audience members. So that that was just really heartbreaking to hear. And then some of the other things were, I think the cultural load, which again, a lot of Indigenous people listening will kind of nod their heads in any industry. Like if you're the kind of Aboriginal person at the desk or in the room, then you're expected to have an answer for a lot of things. And that can be sometimes a huge additional load trying to solve an organisation's problems on diversity or trying to advise it on how to do better on Aboriginal affairs. So yeah, things like that I wrote about in my paper. So you mentioned that there's been, from your perspective, a real change within the ABC. But one of the things I've always admired about you is you have used your voice within the institution and within the profession to advocate for change. Like you have not sat quietly, you've called things out. Mm. And that's not an easy thing to do. And I wonder if you have any reflections on um, why you were motivated to do that, you know, and, and has there been a cost um, in terms mm. of being one of those people within the organisation, especially for women where if we do raise issues, we're often seen as difficult, that we're complaining, mm. um, that we're high maintenance. And I wondered mm. what it was has been like for you um, as somebody who has, you know, I guess taken um, a very responsible role in terms of calling mm. out behaviour and um, racism and hypocrisy when you've seen it. Yeah. I think I got to a point where I felt like, do you know what, my complaints and my criticism is coming from a really important place and a, and a well-meaning place and a loving place. Like, I love the ABC. Do I think it's perfect? No. I mean, I don't think anyone, any institution in Australia um, that's been built over decades and has ha had its foundations built um, in a really complicated time and complex history that our country has um, is perfect. So, you know, I th think we could all just walk around and say there's no work to be done, nothing to be seen here and everything's good, but that doesn't serve us. And so I think I wasn't criticising the ABC and saying I'm I'm leaving the ABC or, I'm, or I hate the ABC. I was saying the ABC for its survival needs to adapt and it needs to listen and it needs to change in many ways. And um, I also felt like, you know, there are a lot of people beneath me who um, perhaps haven't been here as long. I mean, I haven't been here ages. I've been here kind of more than a decade, but 
who don't have a voice. And I, I remember what that was like in a newsroom, feeling like like going into a toilet and crying your eyes out and feeling like, oh, all the work I put into this and this institution does not love me back. And, you know, that's a big lesson in my life. Institutions do not love you back. <laughs> but um, but feeling like, look, it's time for me to step forward and what's the worst that could happen if I use my voice in a responsible way? Like, what what would be the really terrible thing that can happen? And also, like, look at what blackfellas do everywhere, all around the country. We use our voices. We, you know, we speak up from our perspective. That's so, so important. And is it scary? Yes, it is. It can be. But um, especially in the climate that we're in now, but I'm not going to stop. I mean, I think it's like, look at look at what many journalists around the world are facing compared to what I'm facing, which is pretty minor. I mean, we've seen dozens of journalists killed um, in the Israel-Gaza conflict um, in Gaza. Many Gazan-based journalists killed. Um, in Oxford, I was able, very privileged to work alongside journalists who work in exile um, because they can't work in their home countries because of repressive regimes. So I think it does take some courage, but, you know, we've, we're very much inspired by the people that have gone before us and have spoken up as well. From your own experiences, the in-depth research you've now done through the fellowship, which probably consolidated a lot of the things you've not only lived, but you've um, shared and with your colleagues, your First Nations colleagues, and from the fact that you have been an advocate for change uh, in these issues within your own institution. What is your advice or your thoughts on the things that media organisations need to be doing to address the sorts of issues that have come up in terms of what it's like for working First Nations journalists? I think we need a critical mass of blackfellas in the media and we haven't yet seen that. It, we're starting to see a really wonderful generation, particularly of black women actually coming through um, at the ABC, which is so inspiring. It's like, watch this space, look what they're going to achieve in the next few years. Uh, but plenty of organisations do not ha- do not employ any Aboriginal people. And in my view, that's shameful and unacceptable. It's 2024. What are you doing if you don't have an Indigenous Affairs round in your newsroom? Um, and once you, once you do build an Indigenous Affairs round in your newsroom, what are you doing to listen to them and to support them? Are they the only person sitting there or do you have a plan to create a unit or create a team? Um, and... I would like to see more non-Indigenous, and there are many, many fabulous non-Indigenous reporters who cover Aboriginal affairs in this country who do, you know, stellar work, but there are also too few of those people because we can't do this alone. Um, I think I do believe that the best Aboriginal affairs work being done in the country is being done by black journalists and that we have a really important lens over our own issues. Actually, it was a wonderful Maori journalist who said to me, you know, this is going to take a generation and we can't, we cannot do this alone. We need allies and we need other reporters, whether it be a politics reporter, whether it be a sports reporter, actually start to think about these issues and think of them as the top story. This is the top story. These, a lot of these issues should be what 
we are leading within bulletins and on home pages. I think for the press gallery, I say this all the time, I've got a lot of friends in the press gallery, but I think over many years, I don't think it's been great. I mean, we saw some questions during the voice campaign, didn't we? You know, daily questions to the prime minister and other ministers during that time about Indigenous affairs. But that was about quite a specific issue. And then once it was finished, it was kind of like, okay, moving on. You know, often when there's a scandal, whether perhaps it's a it's a black woman who's been murdered or who's gone missing, why isn't the Prime Minister asked about that? Um, why does it take an Indigenous journalist to ask those questions? So I think there needs to be better best practice in covering Indigenous affairs across the entire media spectrum. I don't know when it's going to happen, but that's what I'd love to see. Well, you raise an interesting point because, of course, the referendum last year was a moment where there was additional, probably perhaps unprecedented, mm-hmm. focus on Indigenous issues, particularly that one Indigenous issue at the national level um, because of, of the referendum. From your perspective, what are your reflections on that result and the coverage of the campaigns from the media's point of view? Have you got any reflections on that that you'd like to share? It was funny, I'm I'm sure you felt the same, Larissa, during that um, time because it was such a frenzy. It was hard to keep up. I felt like I was running on a treadmill falling off, you know, because there was all this coverage and every media organisation was covering and it was the top story. And I felt like I sort of just stepped back for a moment on quite a few days and I just looked at it all and I felt like, oh, where, where have you mob been? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, oh, welcome, welcome to Indigenous, come on in, you know, come on into our lives, you know. Um, and I think a lot of the questions, uh, there was some really wonderful, there was some wonderful reporting um, that centred um, our people and our communities in that reporting. And then there was some not great stuff, like let's face it. And, I, you know, if you ever listen to some of the press conferences you know, with the Prime Minister or the Indigenous Affairs Minister, you know, some of the questions you just felt like, wow, this is really, I think, showing <laughs> us up as having not a greatly sophisticated understanding of the nuance and the diversity within Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. Like, actually, even the reporting of the the no camp, for want of a better term, was really interesting to me because obviously as Aboriginal journalists, we understood that there were there were complex views among, you know, we even within our own families, there were differing mm. views and within our own friends and that, that it was a, a complex thing and that wasn't necessarily a hard yes or hard no. There was a lot of grey areas in between. But we understand that because we understand stand ourselves as full, you know, human beings and communities, right? But that reporting, I, I think, was particularly kind of a bit base level about like, well, it's, you know, the Aboriginal people, this Aboriginal person doesn't isn't voting yes, so that's done and dusted. Like Aboriginal people don't want this or this person is so done and dusted. You know, that I think was not great. I think the level of disinformation was deeply concerning. I think for our for our democracy ongoing, we haven't seen a kind of national vote play out since then, but I wonder whether perhaps that was kind of a precursor to what's to come. I mean, I hope not, but the disinformation and those kind of 1990s old tropes about Aborigines wanting to take your backyard, I mean, that was, I know a lot of elders, particularly who had lived through that time over the native title wars and discourse in the 90s and early 2000s, like, were just flabbergasted that we were back there and very saddened and I think we're yet to kind of take stock of everyone's psychological health after that campaign. 
Yes, I certainly heard things I hadn't heard for a very long time. Mm. I wonder, given your experience covering the portfolio and what you've observed during that very heated time and what the community has been expressing to you since then, where do you do you think things are going? Because it sort of feels like there's not a real sense that people have a, a hold on what happens next or, you know, how do we follow on from that? But um, you've watched these things very carefully. What's mm. your sense on where we are and where we're going? No, I don't know that we do have a coherent sense of where we go next. Um, I think, I mean, obviously the result meant different things to different people um, and there is a, you know, pretty sizable portion of our people that were very disappointed uh, by the referendum result and then others who felt that it was the right result. Um and I don't, I don't think we've nef- necessarily seen leadership from the federal government yet or an articulated plan about how we kind of mend that wound. You know, the, the need for Aboriginal people to have a really strong voice, however that may look, or to have more input into the decisions that are made about our lives, that hasn't gone away. But it's just sort of seemed like we're in a bit of a collective slump since October. And I know that I I do know there's been a lot of meetings and a lot of people gathering, but understandably, a lot of people who were leading that push for a referendum are now pretty exhausted. I mean, I was talking to someone the other day, I know pretty well, who just said, you know, we're all really burnt out and tired. So I can understand that. But I think there is probably a need in the coming weeks and months for the federal government to really outline what's next in the Indigenous affairs policy space. And I don't think we've really seen or heard that yet. Obviously, there's been a whole lot of, um, we've just seen a whole lot of uh, focus on this area. And you have been in the thick of it, as I mentioned. But I wonder when you sit back now and look at the things you've covered over your career as a journalist, are there things or particular stories that still jump out to you as the kind of ones that kind of meant the most or were the most personal or the ones that you're most proud of? Because it's an extraordinary career that's covered a lot of things. And I wondered what your Mm. personal highlights are. They're often very different to the things that you've won awards for, but um, Mm. not always, but sometimes there's there's other things. I wonder what sort of areas and stories still really um, are the ones that you hold close to your heart. The one that jumps out at me is the one that really probably had the uh, biggest impact on me, and that was covering um, the removal of Aboriginal children at an unprecedented rate in Victoria that's still happening, Um, and actually digging into the system and having a look at um, what was happening to so many kids who have not been placed um, with their family or have not been afforded the right to keep um, a connection to who they are. And it's always stories involving children that have a really kind of permanent impact on me. And that one in particular was really, really personal because it was was the Victorian Aboriginal community and I could see, I spoke to people who are just doing everything they can to try and keep families together and who do work unseen, unheard, out of hours, you know, unpaid work to try and just take care of our kids. And I, I, I just will never forget that story. You know, I went to a beautiful childcare centre, Lullers, which is in Shepparton on Yorta Yorta country. And 
Uh, so they, they deal with a lot of amazing families. They also deal with some vulnerable families as well. The things they do, you know, for families, again, like unpaid with whatever funding they can kind of scrounge, it's just so inspirational. And so like even in those stories where it's really, really tragic, gosh, our mob are so amazing. Like you just meet people who won't make the news, don't really want to be interviewed. They don't want any kind of um, accolades, but they just do the most. Um, so that was that story really sticks out at me. And then another one is a story I did with Isabella Higgins, which we are super proud about because um, it's led to a lot of change, which was a story in Santa Teresa where people's houses are in a shocking, shocking state. Um, and they had a big battle over the kind of amount of rent that they were paying. And we met this one woman, single mum, Jasmine. She was up in the night. Um, her house was in such a bad state that sewage was like leaking through the house. So she'd get up in the middle of the night and she'd mop all their floors to get all this sewage out. And we're really proud of that story because she, we centred her in the story. When we got there, we were like, you know what, Jasmine needs to be at the heart of this story. This is not just, you know, Aboriginal people complain about housing. Like, I don't want to read that story. You know, that's sold in such a kind of dry way. This was actually about the women in the heart of the community. Also, Annie, this incredible elder who was so hilarious and funny while she was talking about having to sleep on the, on the floor with her great-grandchildren because there was no housing in the town. That story has led to such change for sanitaries and mob and they have been through a massive court process and um, a real battle to kind of get the nation to understand that their rights and their tenancy rights really matter. So that story just, I don't know, the people there just really got under my skin and Isabella and I had such an amazing time spending time with those people. It was such a significant story and as you rightly point out, it led to a very important significant change in the area of housing, which has been such a difficult problematic policy area seemingly yeah. for governments to get right or do anything wrong. And it does raise that question, you know, what do you see the relationship between journalism and truth-telling and journalism and social change? Some people take the view that it should be very um, objective, uh, you know, you have to be very balanced, Have you know, shouldn't be activist, all of those sorts of things. But at the end of the day, you're also reporting on issues that affect people's lives. And I imagine one of the reasons why that story is so close to your heart is because you and Isabella managed to create really important change for the community through your work. So yeah, I mean, you, what is this relationship between <laughs> truth-telling yeah. and, uh, and journalism? So it's interesting you say that because I often explain explain this to people because I, I really believe in balance and I believe in different views because we have different views in our communities. Like that is so important to me. You know, you might go to cover an issue and you'll find blackfellas who have starkly different views on the issue. So, you know, in a lot of reports, it's actually weaving in those voices. It's so important that we capture that. Um, you know, we, we, we're not all one homogenous group, so that's really important. But what is journalism if you're not trying to force change in some area or you're not trying to um, shed a light on a discrimination or injustice? I mean, that's what the best journalists in Australia do. Um, so if you're not striving for that, if you're not striving to dig into something or investigate something, then, you know, then you, what... what what are you doing? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I always remember Kerry O'Brien came to talk to us when we were cadets and he said, you know, you can be, 
he talks about being fair to people as well. And he he said, you can be sceptical. You have to be really sceptical of institutions and of governments, but you should never be cynical. You know, you should really always keep hope that things can change um, and that we can have a better future for for our people. Well, certainly the aunties when you go back home will be asking, what are you doing if you're not having an impact? But I guess one of the things that you would have seen, you came in as a cadet 15 years ago, you've seen enormous change, some of that of which you've been quite active in creating. You mentioned actually a little earlier on that you look around and there is a new generation of young First Nations journalists coming through, a lot of them women, very exciting times. How does that make you feel you're mentoring this next generation of First Nations journalists, what advice do you give them and what uh, impact do you hope they're going to have? Oh, so proud. So, so <laughs> proud. And, um, you know, yeah, I do feel like an old auntie. <laughs> We're so um, young auntie here on Speaking Young Out. Auntie, young I love aunties. it. Young auntie, love it. I'll happily take that term. Yeah, no, I am so proud. And I'm also, I mean, she's kind of still my boss, but up until recently, Suzanne Dredge, who's the head of Indigenous News at ABC and just an absolute powerhouse, um, was my boss. So, you know, that was just like, before I moved over to Brecky, I still talk to her all the time and um, have a lot of um, input into that team. But that was a team that we really pushed for to create. You know, we have, I think, the largest Indigenous affairs, one of the largest Indigenous affairs teams in the world from what I can tell from my research at Reuters, which is super cool. And it's all women. So I think that's so, so great. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. I just feel so proud. And I think the new generation are going to be even more staunch. I think this new generation is it. Um, are they Zoomers? No, Zoomers is even younger. I can't remember what they're called, but they're, they're amazing. <laughs> they're all on TikTok, you know. They are going to be just total powerhouses. And I think they will push down doors that we couldn't push down. And then the next generation will do the same. Um, I'm really proud to see Indigenous women working in the press gallery and being sports journalists. And of course, very, very proud of our blokes as well. But yeah, I think I just feel like really hopeful, really, really hopeful but I hope that they take care of themselves. I mean, that would be my advice, that you have to take care of yourself in whatever way works for you to ensure longevity. We don't want to be seeing Indigenous journalists kind of burn out at 35 and leave the industry before they can really have a huge impact. So we need newsrooms to take care of them and we need our young ones to understand that you just have to put yourself first. Well, that is a wonderful segue to what was going to be my final question for you, which was looking back on everything you've achieved, including um, important scholarship and advocacy that we can add to just your um, wonderful career as a journalist. What do you do to relax? How do you manage that cultural load, the additional stresses, the challenges of being a First Nations person doing these stories? What is it that you do to relax, to recharge and recover? Mm. Or are you one of these people that gives that advice and then doesn't take it? Oh, I don't imagine sometimes. that's true. But... <laughs> no, sometimes. I'm better at it now, but sometimes for sure. Sometimes I'd be the way I would relax is line up another story <laughs> and just like go and work too much. But no, um, recently I'm really looking at my work-life balance, which is at the moment I'm working part-time. I've got little kids. So being with them and being fully with them with my phone down away from news is weirdly the way, even though they drive 
drive me mental sometimes. Um, but they, you know, that's the way that I have been trying to switch off, see the world through their eyes and have time with them, hopefully take them on country a little bit more and planning a few trips this year so that we can do that together and be outside. I love to cook. I love to read. I love to watch things and d- dive into things that aren't about news. And I think if you're a real news junkie, that can be hard. Like it's taken me years to realise I don't necessarily have to dive into the news first thing in the morning, every morning, because that was such a practice of mine. So when I'm on holidays, I'm not, I'm not being a news junkie. I'm just, you know, just trying to be a bit more calm and also going to my mum's house, which is in regional Victoria and it's really beautiful and there's lots of kangaroos. Like that's such a nice recharge as well. Bridget Brennan, thank you so much for spending some time with us on Speaking Out. But also thank you so much for your body of work, your activism within the profession and just being such a trailblazer for us all in general, especially us First Nations women. Thanks, Larissa. Young Arnie's Club forever. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. That's ABC journalist Bridget Brennan. Bridget's a Jar Jar Warung and Yorta Yorta woman from Victoria. She's worked as both the ABC's Europe correspondent and its first Indigenous Affairs correspondent. More recently, she was Indigenous Affairs editor at ABC News before taking on a new role as a newsreader on ABC News Breakfast. That's the show for now. Join us again next time when we bring you more inspirational stories from across Indigenous Australia. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and Sarah Allerley. You can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.